0: message that he has prepared um, for us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would uh, anoint every word that he speaks. Lord, that you would speak through him and that our hearts and our minds would be open to hear what you have to say to each of us. Amen. We are about to look at the most incredible provision that has ever been made in human history, past or present. We're looking at a truly happy meal for 20 to 25,000 people. Because we're told in the account here in the Bible that there were 5,000 men, but they had their wives and they had their children with them as well. And most children in families would mount to four to five. So we are thinking of a huge number of people and this incredible miracle of just a small picnic lunch and the provision being made so widely. In fact, this is such a significant miracle. It's the only miracle Each of the four gospel writers includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's incredibly significant and relevant for us. We're going to focus on Matthew 14, and I will read the account from verse 13, but there is additional detail found elsewhere, and to be fair to the text, I need to include at least some of that as we go along. It's a little bit like witnesses to the same event. They will have a different slant and a different approach to it, and that's what we find here. And we need to include some of that material to get the whole picture. John the Baptist has been executed. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowd followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And healed their sick. As evening approached the disciples came to him and said this is a remote place and it's already getting late send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied they do not need to go away you give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and children. The Red Queen in Alice Through the Looking Glass said that sometimes she could believe six impossible things before breakfast. And there are people who read an account of a miracle like this and they think that is unbelievable. It couldn't have happened. There must be some other explanation. In fact, my credulity is stretched in the opposite direction. I find it hard not to believe this, when you remember the hands that are actually creating all of that food. Indeed, when you think about the arguments used against this, do you know what they are? One is, well, inspired by the gift of a picnic lunch Everybody shared their food so that everybody had something to eat. If that was the case, don't you think there would be quite a write-up outside of the Gospels about that to contradict and to correct what the Gospels are actually saying? And there is no such write-up. And then others would say, well, what happened was the disciples had stored up provisions in one of those mountain caves. And what they did was they gradually edged over to the cave and they got the food from there and distributed it. Do you know, I think the belief of unbelief is unbelievable. (laughs) It takes more faith to actually believe that than to believe That Jesus did this, particularly when you realise just whom Jesus is, the Son of God, God himself in flesh. The one who could look at those stars at night but had put those stars in their place. The one who as a carpenter was able to make a table but made the tree that made the table. No problem in believing that this miracle could take place, no big deal. But there are four huge truths in this miracle. And if we can assimilate them, if we can grasp them, if we will understand them, if we will apply them into our lives, they will quite literally be a game changer for us. Because the outcome will be we will learn a contentment about our lives. We will learn how to experience a satisfaction far greater than anyone or anything else can ever provide into our experience. Most of the places that people look for satisfaction these days are in places or people or possessions. And they soon discover they can be rich in the things that perish but poor in the things of the Spirit. Rich in goods yet poor in grace. Rich in know-how yet poor in character. Rich in words yet poor in deeds. Rich in so many ways of minor importance and yet poor in so many ways of major significance because they do not experience that depth of satisfaction that is gloriously possible and possible for us right now. To experience and to know. And I say that without exaggeration. The first huge truth is problems don't escape God's attention. Have we got a problem? Are you sitting next to your problem? Don't answer that. (laughs) The crowd following Jesus have genuine physical needs. No town is nearby. They're way up north. They're on the far shore of Galilee. And Jesus, looking at these families, thousands of them, he has compassion upon them. He feels deeply. We have a God with emotions. We have a God who feels about things. And that's how he felt when he saw them. Some of those people battling with that problem, they didn't deserve that. They were children. They had been brought into that situation. And sometimes problems come into our lives because of the circumstances that happen around about us. But have we a problem? Sometimes we have little ones, sometimes we have big ones, sometimes we're anticipating them into the future and that's why we end up with anxiety. We worry about what we're going to worry about when the time comes to worry about it. (laughs) The problems that we have to address. You see, God doesn't wrap us up in cotton wool. I've become a believer, and now everything should go right. And when it doesn't, where are you, God? Why did that happen in my life? God doesn't operate like that within us. If he did, just think it through. It would mean only the believers would be problem-free, so every unbeliever is going to become a believer motivated by the fact I want to be free of my problems. That's not the kind of world that we are living in. But it's important that we understand God knows. And God's involved. And God feels about the situations that we are in. But the rub is this. Our problem is not a problem. It is our reaction to the problem, which is the problem. You understand Because the essence of a circumstance is never in the circumstance, but always in our reaction to that circumstance. And if I react one way, it could finish me, but if I react a better way, it could make me, it could grow me, or it could throw me. The very problem could be a waste of my time or an investment of my time, and that is dependent upon the second huge game-changer. Perplexities test faith in God. Why does God allow trials, troubles, stresses, tensions, problems into our experience? Well, one reason is trials can grow us. A sports coach wanting an Olympian athlete to get that gold knows, as indeed does the athlete, you have to set the bars high. You have to put extra demands and hurdles, not because you want to see your athlete fail, quite the opposite. You know that is the only way in which they're going to mature and become that winner. And Jesus sets a test. Now, it is John who picks up on this and gives us an additional detail here, that it was Philip that he particularly had his eye upon when he asked, where are we going to get provisions for this amount of people? Probably because they were near Philip's hometown. Jesus is not looking for information. They may say, as indeed another Gospel writer does, well, eight months' wages wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd of people. Jesus knew that. That isn't the point. Philip's calculations were wrong because he didn't factor in Jesus. And sometimes I have wondered how much we miss because we don't include him. We operate from a human viewpoint rather than a divine viewpoint. Our perspective becomes too parochial, too small, leaving God out of that picture. Indeed, in the previous chapter, Matthew 13, these disciples have been with Jesus and they've gone by the hometown of Jesus and do you know what it said? He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Or he did some things but they missed out on so much more of having Jesus in their midst because they wouldn't look to him and anticipate and expect from him and I sometimes wonder we can be involved in church things and sing the hymns and pray the prayers and profess the creed and we can be involved in such a way but not really hearing from God anticipating from him what is it that you want to do how is it you want to function in my life right now and we miss it can we excuse Philip Not really, because previously he's been at a wedding and a whole lot of water has changed into a quality wine and he's observed what Jesus could do. Not really, because he's seen a man 38 years paralysed, made well by Jesus. Not really, because he's just seen in the last few minutes sick people being healed. Asked, Where are we going to get the food to feed these people? They come up with a solution. No bakery is big enough. Send them to the different villages around here to get their own food. The disciples are focused on inadequacy, not Christ's ability. Is that true of us? Facing problems... And perplexed? Then we're ready for the next great game-changer, if we will grasp it. People are part of God's plan. Now Andrew is named, again by another gospel writer, as the particular person who brought a little boy to Jesus with his picnic lunch. He was good at bringing people to Jesus. He had brought his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. It's good to bring people to Jesus from our circle of influence, if we're able. Have you heard of the name of Albert Macmillan? Probably not. But you may, if you know something about church history, know a bit about Mordecai Ham. You see, Albert was the person who took a person who was a friend of his at school to a tent to hear the gospel. Because Mordecai Ham would go around America, put up a tent in a farmer's field with permission, and then invite the neighbourhood to come and hear the gospel. And Albert invited his friend, who wouldn't come until the final Friday evening, heard the gospel, walked forward and the world has been different ever since because his friend was Billy Graham it was one to one that did it and globally Christianity is in the greatest harvest it has ever experienced right now please please don't think of Christianity in small terms that you may be familiar with right here. What is happening around the world is utterly amazing with the growth of the Christian church. And it's happening one to one. You know, it's hard to imagine that out of 5,000 men plus their wives and the children, there wasn't somebody else who also had a picnic lunch that they could have shared. I can imagine this boy's mum saying, well, if you're going out for the day, you're going to have to have some food with you, make sure you've got some water as well, but I'll give you these bread bits, it would be a flat pancake-looking bit of bread, and it will be probably a couple of sardines. Unnamed and insignificant doesn't mean useless. Don't ever get down on ourselves. I'm not gifted. I'm a loser. Actually, you started life as a winner. Because when you were conceived, there were 40 million sperm racing for one egg and you won. (laughs) When it comes to our acceptance, the world says it's got to be earned, it's got to be merited, it's down to what you do. It's not with God. His grace means it's unmerited, it's a gift. I remember hearing of a a padre, a chaplain at a hospital, and he had been asked by a woman who knew that she was dying to visit and to pray with her. Very sensitively, he said, have you got peace about meeting your maker and creator? She looked him in the eye, smiled, and said, yes, I have. Because when I get to meet God, I will show him my hands. And I will tell him of all the work these hands have done for other people. I've got peace. I will show him my hands. I don't know how you would reply to that. But I know how he did and how helpful it was for her because he said, I'm sorry, he won't see your hands because he's too busy looking at someone else's hands, hands that were pierced 2,000 years ago for you. But if you will trust them, then you can be at peace. A song says to those of us who know the pain of Valentine's that never came and those whose names were never called when choosing sides for basketball. But with God, there are no beauty contests. Do you realize a thousand years from now, God will love us just as much as he loves us now because he can't love us anymore. Because his love is complete. His love is perfect. And notice the disciples use a word Jesus didn't like one bit. Only. We only have five loaves and two fishes. Could Jesus have done a miracle without the boy? Of course he could. He could rain down manna from the sky. He'd done that centuries before. But he uses the boy. And sometimes within problem situations that address us, we can be used by Jesus into that situation as that boy was. But the disciples didn't see 5,000 men plus their families. They saw 5,000 problems. Which brings us to the fourth great game changer if we can receive this. Provision is abundant in God's name. A young preacher was telling this story to his congregation one Sunday morning, and his tongue got ahead. And he ended up saying, And Jesus did this great miracle. He fed five men with 5,000 loaves of fishes. And at the end, a friend laughed and said, I think I could feed five men with 5,000 loaves and fishes. (laughs) So the next week, he corrected it and he said, and it was 5,000 men with five loaves and two fishes. And he looked at his friend, smiled and said, could you do that? And the man smiled back and said, yes. With all those loaves and fishes left over from last week, Five plus two equals not much. Five plus two plus Jesus equals the sky's the limit. Taking the picnic, he got them organized into family groups. Could you imagine what would happen, the chaos, if he hadn't done that? I mean, we've all seen those news scenes, a truck turning up, with sack loads of food, and they just throw it out in the scramble that there is. And then he gave thanks. It's a good thing to give thanks for our food, even if it's just good bread, good meat, good God, let's eat. Yes, our Bible tells us if we're rich, which is probably most of us in the perspective of the world, not to be arrogant but to be generous, but it also says that he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So if you have a table groaning with good things, you can be thankful to God for that, just as they were on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit and going from house to house and having meals together, or as they were in the early days of communion. You realize it was in the context of a full-scale meal, probably the only best meal that some of those slaves converted to Christ would have all week. Now I know that we mustn't define a balanced meal today as a cake in one hand and a jam donut in the other. I know that's not what we mean by a balanced meal. That said, I am inclined to think at my time of life I shouldn't be eating healthy foods I need all the preservatives I can get. (laughs) Nutritionists will tell us, it's all down to the colours we have on our plate. You need green, reds and yellows. That's absolutely no problem whatsoever for me. In five minutes, I can easily get through a bowl of Smarties. They all ate and were satisfied. Twelve basketfuls were left over and the disciples gathered them up so they would have tomorrow morning breakfast. So, what impossibilities are we facing? Where are we saying, I've only got this or I've only got that? A little is a lot in the hands of Jesus. Let's put ourselves in his hands. The provision Jesus offers is much more than a free meal. And we know that again from another gospel where they followed him still further because they were looking for the sensation or looking for another meal like the one they'd had previously. Another free meal. And Jesus turned and said, you know, I want to do something so much more. I could satisfy you for a day in that way, but I've come to do something bigger. I am the bread of life. And I want to satisfy you, not just in time, but for eternity. And how does he do that? He does that, and he illustrated it through bread and wine. Did you realize that? Because a little later, he would give them a picture just before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he went on to the cross, and he would take bread and wine. And he was illustrating, like broken bread and poured out wine, I will offer my life as a substitute for yours, so that you don't have to look forward to a day of condemnation, but can look back to yours, because it was taken by me, that you might be forgiven and reconciled and be able to relate in time and through eternity with God. But more than that, he was raised from the dead and ascended. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this same Jesus comes to live and indwell our human spirits, to satisfy us in the deepest of ways from the inside out as we reckon upon him then as our word of God says, there will be life and peace. Have we put our lives in Christ's hands? Are we keeping them in his hands, presenting our body, allowing him to renew our minds? There is no safer or ultimately satisfying place. Gracious Father, Thank you for every provision that you give. Thank you for being the bread of life in Jesus. Amen.